Let's pray. Father, we just thank you that we can come here this morning and worship and praise you and know that you are for us, not against us, to give us a future and a hope. And so, God, I ask this morning that you just open us up to your incredible love and help us to have a fresh encounter with you. And we ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Anyone know where two eye is? Anyone? Toi. 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 Down the bottom of Waikari Moana. Okay, so 1983, um, my... Mad brother and I had been reading the paper that these guys were catching all these big trout uh, down the bottom of Waikaremana. So we decided that we would go on a fishing trip. And um, I had just picked up a three day old company car, Holman uh, Commodore. So I thought, what a fantastic opportunity to try the car out. Now, anyone who's been down to Waikaramoana will know that from Murapara onwards, there's just gravel roads, was there was back in 1983, and I don't know whether it's changed uh, these days, but uh, I hadn't had a lot of experience on gravel roads, and I was travelling a little bit quick for the conditions, and so I suppose the writing was on the wall, and... Um, I was heading down this, uh, this reasonably narrow gravel road and a tourist cut the corner at the bottom and so I just braked and I slid right into the side of this little Mitsubishi Mirage. Three-day-old car. I was absolutely, absolutely gutted. I was embarrassed we got to uh, Toai, and um, we were supposed to be there for three days, and I was so upset. I, um, I was so knotted inside that I said to my brother, hey, forget this. <laughs> I want to go home. <laughs> I want my mummy. <laughs> but it was inevitable. It was absolutely, absolutely inevitable. The speed I was driving, the conditions, everything else, something, something was going to happen. And maybe you've been in situations where the future outcome was absolutely inevitable, whether it was a relationship, whether it was a business venture, uh, whether it's a personal situation. When you look back, it was obvious what was going to happen. The signs were all there. The writing was on the wall. Now, the expression, the writings on the wall, comes, has come to mean something that's going to happen for sure. It's nearly unavoidable. It's often associated with a negative outcome, but not necessarily. So this morning, I want to talk about the writings on the wall for your life, the absolutes, the inevitable, the unmovable outcomes in your life, and what we can do about them. But first... Uh, I want to look at where that expression, the writings on the wall, came from. So if you've got your Bibles, you can turn to Daniel chapter 5. Those of you who have been with us for the last uh, month or so uh, will know that I've been doing a series in the book of Jan Daniel. And last time I preached, I preached from Daniel chapter 4. Well, there's about 20 years 
that have passed between Daniel chapter 4 and Daniel chapter 5. Daniel is about 80 years of age at this stage. Nebuchadnezzar is no longer king, but there's been a series of unstable rulers. And now Belshazzar is co-consul with his father, and Belshazzar is ruling in Babylon. The Medes and the Persians are trying to attack the Babylonians, but Babylon is absolutely impregnable. It's double wall is so wide that you could turn a four-horse chariot around on top of it. That's how wide this wall is. The river Euphrates flows through the city, so there's always got water. There are acres and acres and acres of fields within the walls for growing food. So if someone laid siege to Babylon, the the Babylonians could hold out forever and a day. Uh, There was a huge, impassable moat uh, around it, which was created by the river. And so the king of Babylon has a right to feel really, really safe. So he throws a party. He throws a party for a thousand of his nobles. And during the course of the evening, he decides that he'll get all of the cups, the gold and the silver cups that uh, the Babylonians had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. And he gets all of these cups so that they can party and drink from them. Then at the height of the festivities, this is what we read. Daniel chapter 5, verse 5. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. And by the way... um, if you can see the um, background that I'm using for these slides, that's a um, painting that Penny and I saw. It's by Rembrandt. It's in the National Gallery in London, and it's called Belshazzar's Feast. So Belshazzar calls his wise men. He offers huge reward to anyone who can translate the writing, but none of them can. Then his mother, the queen, comes in and tells him about Daniel who he doesn't know. And so Daniel gets called to the palace. And uh, we pick it up in verse 18, and it says this. It says, Your majesty, the most high God, gave your father, and by the way, the term father here could mean um, grandfather or great-grandfather or whatever. It's a, it's a generic term. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, All the nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like the ox, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over the kingdoms of the earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. But you, Belshazzar, his son, 
have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this, instead you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You, have, you had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines, drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. This is what the words mean. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then, at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple. A gold chain was placed round his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. By the way, the third highest ruler was the highest that he could be given because you've got the king, you've got his father who were co-consuls, and then the next one down would have been the third highest ruler. So that's what was given to, to Daniel. Verse 30, that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain. Historians tell us that the Medes and the Persians diverted the river Euphrates enough to lower the water level in the moat, and then the army was able to enter the city through the river, and so they completely took Babylon by surprise. And in the same way, in, in this life, a huge number of people are going to be taken by surprise. Uh, Ivern Ball, the one-line genius, said, most of us can read the writing on the wall. We just assume it's addressed to somebody else. So what are some of the certain certainties for us? What's the writing on the wall? What are the absolute certainties in life? Well, number one, the absolute statistic Every one of us will die and then face God. Why don't you turn to the person next to you and say, you're going to die one day. <laughs> I've already told you that, haven't I, Colin? <laughs> oh. Hebrews 9.27, man is destined to die once and after that, to face judgment. And it doesn't matter who you talk to. It doesn't matter whether they believe in God or not. Uh, every one of us know that we are going to die at some stage or other. Uh, we all know it. It's the one absolute statistic. The problem is, not many people are preparing for eternity. One of the great sadnesses for me was the number of my friends who worked in the dairy industry with me who gave their lives to working for the company, heading for retirement and the good long days of sun and sand and the money 
when they retired, heaps of them only lasted five years. And then eternity. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. In other words, we have all been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Luke 12.2, There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight and what you have whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. There is no such thing as a secret sin. It's all going to be revealed. That's a bit scary, isn't it? In God's eyes, the penalty for sin is death and eternal separation from God. There is a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. The writing's on the wall. Everyone has sinned. So we should all be destined to spend eternity in hell. And that is scary. No matter how good we think we are, our good works aren't good enough. It's interesting that um, William Booth, who was the founder of the Salvation Army, uh, said... The chief danger of this 20th century will be religion without the Holy Ghost. It'll be Christianity without Christ. It'll be forgiveness without repentance. It'll be salvation without regeneration. And he is true. Every one of those, you'll see the hallmarks in churches um, of the 21st century. But Jesus told us that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. So the writing's on the wall. Every one of us are going to die. But secondly, we all have to make a choice. We all have to make a choice. In 1985, I spent some time in China in the city of Guangzhou where I was attending an international symposium hosted by the Chinese government. And one morning, a friend and I decided to hire a car and a driver uh, for the day and drive around uh, some of the sites around Guangzhou. And so one of the first places that we went to was the library where Mao Zedong spent much of his early years. And we were looking around at all of the bits and pieces that were there, and we came across this ornate glass case. And in the glass case were slippers, were ruler, were pencils, and a number of other artifacts. And so we took photos of this, and we took photos with each other and everything else. And then we saw um, one of the uh, not the guards, but one of the security people who were standing there. And so we thought, well, we'll go over and we'll just see if he, he can explain to us what all the items are. Obviously, mousy tongs. 
And so we go over to the, to the man and fortunately spoke English. And so we pointed to the glass case and, and, he said, and we said, could you explain to us what this is? And he said, lost property. <laughs> lost property. One thing I remember visit, uh, vividly was our ride through many of the narrowest streets that were absolutely jam-packed uh, with um, people. And uh, this, uh, this was 1985, and uh, so they had traffic lights up in Guangzhou at that stage, but they weren't using them. And so, you know, there's millions of people. And um, the streets were crowded, but our driver just drove straight through the middle. Talk about parting the waters. I mean, honestly, you're going down through this narrow street that's crowded with people. He's going straight down the middle. People were literally diving one side or the other. He split the crowd right in half. In an instant, people in the center of the street had to decide which side they were going to go for. It was amazing that nobody got injured. Uh, there was no central position, though. You either dive to the left or you dive to the right. And that's the truth with us as well. We have to choose the left or the right. We have to choose light or darkness, heaven or hell, blessing or cursing, life or death. We have to choose Jesus or not Jesus. You can't just wait and see uh, whether it'll all pan out or not because that is going to be too late. 1 Corinthians 15.3 says, For what I received I pass on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Hebrews 9.27, Just as a man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. Colossians 3.14, He has forgiven all our sins and cancelled every record of the debt that we owed, but we have to choose to believe in him, and we have to ask him to come into our lives, and then we have to choose to live for him. Romans ten thirteen for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And it's not just us that we're talking about here. It's our friends, it's our relatives, it's our workmates that need to hear the good news that Jesus came to save us from a godless eternity. That's why the heart of Church Unlimited is for New Zealand and beyond. We want to see New Zealand and beyond saved. We want to see our workmates. We want to see our friends saved. And we have that knowledge of the writing on the wall and the interpretation of that. And so we have a responsibility to tell them uh, what's going on, what's happening. The writings on the wall, those with Jesus have eternal life, those without don't. So the writings on the wall for every one of us that we will die and then face God. We all have to make a choice. But the writing is not only negative, 
But the writing on the wall is incredibly positive because one of the absolute fundamental outcomes of life, one of the most significant writings on the wall is that God loves each and every one of us. Have you ever wondered how many songs have been written? More than a thousand. Actually, people conclude that there have been at least a hundred million songs written and recorded over the years. And if you have a look at those, you'll find that most of the songs that have been written are about just one thing. Love. Love. Think of the Beatles songs for those of you my age. Most of their hits are about love or an aspect of love. Uh, I grew up with um, Bert Bacharach and, and Hal David. And one of the songs that they wrote was What the World Needs Now. It's love, sweet love. It's the only thing that is just too little of. And I reckon they got that right too. You see, uh, we are obsessed with love. And if you've ever stopped to think about why we are obsessed with love, I think it's because we are created with a basic need to love and to be loved ourselves. And the greatest source of pure love is God. He says, God is love. So not only is his nature love, but the things that he does are motivated by love. John 3.16 tells us that it was love for us that motivated God to send Jesus. God says in Jeremiah 31.3, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. I will build you up again. John 15.9, Jesus talking says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. 1 John 3 verse 1, See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. 1 John 4 10, This is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And one of my favorite verses is from Isaiah 49 verse 6. I call this the fridge magnet verse because I think if God had a fridge, which he doesn't, but if God had a fridge, it would have our photo on that fridge held up by a fridge magnet. It would have some of the things that we've done on that fridge. In Isaiah 49 verse 15, it says, Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Well, though she may forget, God speaking, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are ever before me. I think this is the first instance of tattoos in the Bible, mentioned in the Bible. God has tattooed your name on his hands. Pretty awesome, eh? He's tattooed your, your name, your details on his hand. He loves us so much that he says, I will never leave you 
or forsake you. Psalm 103 verse 11, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. Love is what motivates God's actions towards us. The writing's on the wall. We can't change that. But we can respond to his love and we can get a revelation of his love. We know that he loves us because of what he says in his word. And we've already read a whole bunch of scriptures that tell us that he loves us. We know that he loves us because he says he wants to spend time with us. He wants to have a relationship with us. We know that he loves us because of this amazing world that he has made for us. We know that he loves us because of his multitude of blessings towards us. And because while we were sinners, he sent Jesus Christ to die for us. Let's have the music team, please. See, we can, we can know that God loves us in our heads. We can have a knowledge of that up there. But the reality is, we need to have that revelation of God's love in our hearts. Because we can be motivated to take action because of fear. Some people are motivated because they don't want to go to hell. And that fear is driving the things that they do or say. But greater motivation than that is love and reward. You see it with, with kids. In our day, we used to have the great motivator, the wooden spoon. Now, now some honesty here. Uh, some honesty here. How, how many older parents, not current ones, how many older parents had a wooden spoon? Yeah, look at that. Yeah. Yeah. And the government took that away from us. <laughs> and it was a great motivator. But for, for my kids, which, which turned out pretty good, uh, but for my kids, there was the threat of the wooden spoon on one side. But there was reward on the other side. And we always found that reward was a greater motivator than fear. Fear could go so far, but love and reward was always a greater motivator to the kids. And that's true in life too. Love of God and reward from God will always motivate you uh, better to live for him than fear. And the Apostle Paul speaks to the church at Ephesus. And this is what he says. He says, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, 
And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all of the Lord's people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know His love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. In other words, what the Apostle Paul was saying to the church is, hey, you've got to know God's love. You've got to experience God's love. You've got to have an encounter with God's love. You've got to have an impartation of God's love in your life. It's not enough just to have it up here in your head and just think, yeah, well, God loves me, but there's got to be such a revelation of God's love towards you that it's going to motivate you and it's going to change the way you live for Him.